Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Jarrett. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Push Dose Medic Podcast. I'm your host, Jaron. I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. I know uh, you're probably bored sitting at home dealing with the pandemic. Hopefully everybody's out there working, making some extra money, and staying safe. Before we get started, I want to give a few shout-outs here. Um, if you need any extra information on all this COVID stuff, I want you to know that IA Med is doing live webinars every Wednesday night. Um, you'll have to check the times because they're central time. But they are weekly topics and updates on the COVID-19 status and also some other random topics that are pretty interesting. And you also get one hour of free Con Ed. Another resource I want to mention is Tony and Daniel with the Motivated Medic and 911 Buddy Check. They're both really good resources. I've been listening to their content. This whole pandemic COVID-19 working your butt off is going to take a toll on your mental wellness. So get up with these guys. Uh, they have a lot of good information out there to kind of battle burnout and just keeping a clear head through all of this pandemic stuff and keeping your mind up where it should be and having good, healthy mental wellness. All right, with all that being said, let's get into this week's episode. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a common derangement known as hyperkalemia. This is a lethal and somewhat common issue you may come in contact with either initially in the field or having to do one of these interfacility transports with somebody suffering from hyperkalemia. So I think this is another one of those issues that paramedic school teaches you and says you won't ever have to worry about it because we can't treat it, which is halfway true and halfway false. This is something you may see a lot. This is something you may see signs and symptoms of, but just can't confirm the diagnosis. And certainly we can treat this. We don't have all the medications to treat it, but you'll definitely come in contact with these patients and be able to initiate treatment before you get to the hospital. So what is hyperkalemia? Let's break that down. Hyperkalemia. So it's an excess amount of potassium in the blood. And we know our normal range of potassium is 3.5 to 5 millimoles per liter. So potassium are intracellular cations. So that means they live inside the cell and they're positively charged. And inside the cell, about 98 of all potassium lives. And that's important to remember. Now, there's some potassium outside the cell, and that's what makes up the remaining 2%. The concentration outside the cell is somewhere around 4.5 milliequivalents. As you can see, that's right down the middle of the th normal range of 3.5 to 5. So an increase or decrease in these levels can cause systemic issues. Kind of a weird way I always remembered this was you grow pot inside and sod outside. So potassium lives inside the cell, and sodium lives outside the cell. Now, of course, they interchange constantly to keep that good balance within our body, that homeostasis. Now, since potassium lives inside the cell, the blood tests that we take, the labs we have at the hospital, that looks at the serum potassium, so the potassium that's in the blood. So we know if, we, if that's elevated, we have more than that 2%, more than that 4.5 milliequivalents, and we may have issues. This is important to understand because potassium plays an important role in the conductivity of muscles, especially in the heart muscle with depolarization. In normal, everyday body systems, we maintain these levels through our kidney functions, through the excretion of excess potassium, 
and balancing through sodium potassium pumps. So the balance of potassium inside and outside our cells is pretty important. This maintains our resting membrane potential. So when we have an increase in potassium and that threshold is broken, our muscles depolarize. Particularly, this is going to be dangerous in our cardiac muscles because it can lead to arrhythmias and eventually cardiac arrest. But there's also issues that can happen within our smooth muscle. We can have extreme muscle weakness leading into muscle paralysis. So let's dig a little deeper into hyperkalemia and how these different levels affect our body. So hyperkalemia in a broad term, is anything above 5.5, anything out of our normal range. We have moderate hyperkalemia, where the serum potassium is above 6, and then we can have severe hyperkalemia, which is anything above 7. So typically, if you're looking at an EKG, you'll see peak T waves. These are like the beginning stages of hyperkalemia. Now, these are different from normal T waves, obviously. They're very tall and tented. They're narrow and sharp. They're not like hyperacute T waves you'll see in ischemic patients, which will be broad and dull, It'll be kind of wide. I'll have examples in the show notes, but just know these are not hyperacute. They're very tall and pointy T waves. Next, you'll see effects on the atria. Decompensation of the SA and AV nodes, your P waves will start to flatten and disappear along with a widening PR interval. And lastly, towards more severe hyperkalemia, you'll start to see the QRS widen and flatten in what's called a sinusoidal wave. This is pretty important to pick up on because not too much longer after this, your patient will probably go into a ventricular lethal rhythm or cardiac arrest with a systole. So if you follow the podcast on Twitter at PushDoseMedic, you'll see a small video I posted yesterday. I'm not able to post a video in the show notes, but it's just a cool trick to remember what to look for on EKG. So go to Twitter and check out Bush Dose Medic. There's an EKG hyperkalemic video on there. Check that out. So speaking of EKGs and hyperkalemia, it's important to note that you may not see EKG changes in every case of hyperkalemia. There are possibilities that you'll have these severe hyperkalemic patients with no EKG changes and someone that actually goes into cardiac arrest with no changes at all. It's also worth noting that any wide complex bradycardia should be considered hyperkalemia until proven otherwise by lab testing. There are studies out there that note EKG changes were only noted in around 50% of patients with hyperkalemia. So if you come in contact with a patient that has just a wide bizarre complex and it's bradycardic, not tachycardic, you should assume this is hyperkalemia until proven otherwise by labs. So what are some of the causes of hyperkalemia and how do these patients present? So the signs and symptoms of hyperkalemia do not exactly pinpoint a diagnosis. They're very broad and can be confused with other things going on in the body. These patients can present with lethargic states, altered level of consciousness, muscle weakness, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, sometimes diarrhea, possibly an increased work of breathing secondary to that muscle fatigue, or secondary to a metabolic acidotic state. And then eventually you may or may not get those EKG changes. So I actually had a patient in the ER the other day while shadowing my medical director that presented with that muscle weakness, nausea, loss of appetite, and mild shortness of breath. So an EKG was done and showed a ventricular paced rhythm, so we weren't able to see any changes on that but her labs came back and revealed her potassium at 6.6. So think about this patient pre-hospital, a patient that presents with 
generalized weakness, nausea, loss of appetite, and shortness of breath. Would you brush this patient off? Would you not take them seriously? So what we're getting at here is hyperkalemia should always be on your radar. Anybody with any of these signs and symptoms, and especially if you have a paced rhythm where you cannot see some of these changes on your EKG, you want to always keep that in the back of your mind because this can be a deadly issue to deal with. So we've gone over what hyperkalemia is, how it presents in the body, how we can pick it up on EKG, but how is it caused? How do people become hyperkalemic? So there's actually a lot of different ways. These ways include cellular shifts, cellular lysis, organ dysfunction, or even medication-induced. So let's start with acidosis. When we have a low pH or a patient in an acidotic state, there's going to be an excessive amount of hydrogen ions within the blood. Hydrogen ions leave the blood and enter the cells through a gradient, and this is all to keep balance. As hydrogen ions enter the cell, potassium leaves. This is all to maintain homeostasis and electrical neutrality. This results in hyperkalemia. You basically cannot have all of these positively charged ions within the cell and all of these negative ions outside of the cell. There is no equilibrium, so one has to go. And unfortunately, it's potassium. Next, we have diabetes. This kind of works in the same way. So when glucose is elevated, potassium leaks outside of the cell and into the bloodstream. Now, normally, insulin drives potassium back into the cell. But with our diabetic patients, especially in type 1 where there's no insulin, we have a lack of insulin, so that leaves an increase in potassium because potassium is not pushed back into that cell. Next, we have hyperosmolarity. So this is an increase in extracellular osmolarity. So we have a bunch of solutes outside the cell within the bloodstream. And since our body's all about homeostasis, water is going to follow a higher concentration. So this water is pulled through a gradient outside of the cell, and that leaves that potassium inside the cell super concentrated. And again, since we're about equilibrium, that potassium is going to leak outside of the cell to maintain homeostasis. In result, this leads to higher serum potassium levels. The next two causes of hyperkalemia are pretty common, and that's cellular lysis and renal dysfunction. Let's start with the lysis. So like we said, we have 98% of potassium within our cells. When cells break down, they release this large amount of potassium into the bloodstream. So think about your rhabdomyolysis and your burn patients. This is common pre-hospital reasons somebody would be hyperkalemic. So the next most common one is renal dysfunction or renal failure. So your body's unable to diurese all that excess potassium. We take in a lot of potassium throughout the day, and it's our body's job to diurese or get rid of any excess. So if we have no way to get rid of it, it's just going to back up in our system, and that's what causes the hyperkalemia. So like I said, it can be caused by excessive intake, but in the end, it's going to result from that organ dysfunction. We can take in as much as we want, but it's our body's job to get rid of it. This can be a chronic issue, somebody with chronic kidney disease, or it can stem from an illness like sepsis or traumatic injury where an acute kidney injury occurs and you have that momentary stop of diuresis. So our next few reasons someone be can become hyperkalemic actually stem back to earlier episodes that we've done. So uh, discussing the RAS system in our hypertensive medication episode, we know that within our body, to maintain our blood pressure, we have a constant balance of sodium-potassium. So there's some drugs that we take for high blood pressure that maintain those, and they can also be harmful and cause hyperkalemia. 
So we have something called potassium sparing drugs. One of the most common one is spiractolone. And like we discuss in some later episodes, it can cause hyperkalemia. We also have ACE inhibitors. We know that ACE inhibitors further down the road block the production of aldosterone. And as we know, aldosterone plays a huge role in that sodium-potassium balance within our body, which leads to our next disease, Addison's disease. Well, actually, our first disease. So if you know anything about Addison's disease, it's a dysfunction and lack of function, more or less, in our adrenal glands. And we know our adrenal gland play a role in the production of cortisol and aldosterone. And again, aldosterone affects the balance of sodium potassium in the blood. So this can lead to a hyperkalemic state. And we're going to throw this in here because I think it's always worth mentioning. Lethal injection. This can definitely make you hyperkalemic. So we never IV bolus potassium. Not large amounts at least. So the normal IV bolus is usually 10 to 20 milli equivalents. And this is given very slow IV push, and most time in a drip over 10 to 20 minutes. So in lethal injection, I had to look this up because I knew nothing about it, but they actually call for 100 milli equivalents, so that's 10 times the normal dose. And this is given IV push, which rapidly leads to all of those EKG changes we talked about earlier, and leads very quickly into cardiac arrest. So we shouldn't see this one in the field. Um, But it's always worth mentioning, it is a cause of hyperkalemia. All right, so we have finally gotten to the treatment of hyperkalemia. Uh, So far, I hope you've learned something about an increase in potassium and how detrimental it can be to our body and how easily it can happen. So now let's just go over how we treat it. So we have a plethora of different medications that basically are going to drive the potassium back into the cell and lower that serum potassium level, and also a medication that's going to protect our heart from any of those lethal EKG changes due to that unstable conduction we have. So first, we're going to start out with calcium. Now, this medication doesn't have the direct method to lower potassium, but instead it's used to protect the heart. Due to any unstable membrane potential, calcium is going to stabilize the myocardial membranes against those cardiac arrhythmias. So I think initially I learned that you want to give this prophylactically, but this is actually wrong. Uh, Calcium has a short half-life, so this really should only be given if you start to see any QRS widening or you hook them up to the monitor and you have that sinusoidal wave already. So any EKG changes, that's when you want to give the calcium. That's when it's going to work the best. So what calcium do you give? Some people carry two types. You have calcium chloride and calcium gluconate. Well, calcium chloride is about three times more concentrated than calcium gluconate. So if we have these EKG changes, we want to give the best calcium we have, which is calcium chloride. Usually you want to give one gram. Now, if gluconate's all you carry, we want to give three grams. It is worth mentioning that calcium is pretty caustic to veins. So initially, I think they always want you to have a central line. Obviously, pre-hospital, that's not the case. And I don't think a central line's really going to happen in most of these patients anyway. So it is preferred, but just make sure you have a good line, large bore IV, and possibly the AC, and slow push. This is usually just put into a drip because you don't want to sit there with a syringe for 10 minutes. So hang it in a drip over 10 minutes and you should be good to go. Next, we'll talk about insulin, glucose, albuterol, and sodium bicarb. So once again, insulin's the main player in the game. That's the medication we're going to give to these patients that's going to really drive that potassium home put it back where it belongs inside the cell, and lower that blood serum level. 
Now we want to give glucose in these patients just to counteract the effects of insulin it's going to have on the blood sugar. We know if we start nearing that 250 mark, we might want to hang some glucose so we don't have that dramatic drop in blood sugar and create this hypoglycemic state. So insulin's important and hang glucose if you have to. Next is a treatment I probably never would have thought of when I learned it, and that's continuous albuterol treatments. I'm not sure if we mentioned earlier, but another one of the causes of hyperkalemia, which is a small cause, would be taking a beta blocker, something that inhibits that sodium-potassium pump. Either way, if we give a beta-2 agonist, it doesn't help a lot. It doesn't really move a lot of potassium, but it does help activate that sodium-potassium pump to shift small amounts of potassium back into, into the cell. Now, you need massive amounts of albuterol to do this, usually between 10 and 20 milligrams of albuterol. Now, some trucks may carry that much. I know we sometimes do carry that much. We just have like a Ziploc bag full of it. But these have to be continuous treatments. So if you don't have enough albuterol, there's really no point in even starting them. And lastly, I think we have to give an honorable mention to the most controversial medication, which is bicarbonate, sodium bicarb. As we know, the action of sodium bicarb is basically to grab up all those extra hydrogen ions and get them out of the body, buffer everything out, get back to our neutral state. Well, there's obviously some downfalls to every medication, and bicarb has a few. So if, as we know, if we give sodium bicarb, the breakdown of sodium bicarb into the body is carbonic acid. So if we're not able to breathe off all these extra hydrogen ions our body creates, we're in turn going to make our body more acidotic. And there's also something called solvent drag. So the concentrations of sodium bicarb that most people carry on the truck, they're super concentrated. So when we give that that ampule of sodium bicarb, we're delivering a hypertonic solution. And that's going to actually pull potassium out of the cell and increase the serum potassium even more. So if we're giving bicarb, most of the time it's going to be in a drip. And this is something we're not going to do in the pre-hospital world. But you may see it on an inter-facility transfer. This is still controversial. I talk to some people that say it works, some people it doesn't. They mainly see it in the ICU. I think it's still up in the air, and there's a bunch of bicarb jokes on the internet. I recommend looking into them, but just know that this can be one of the treatments in your acidotic hyperkalemic patients. Next, let's move on to dialysis. This can actually be a reason the person's hyperkalemic, and it can also be a treatment. So if somebody misses dialysis, Let's go back to that renal failure, renal dysfunction. If you're in dialysis, basically your kidneys don't work. Uh, they're not able to excrete any of that bad stuff in our body, and that includes potassium. So we'll have an increase in potassium. So dialysis patients, that's one of your main patients you want to worry about hyperkalemic, especially if they missed dialysis or they left early because they didn't feel good. Always keep these people on your radar. Most severe patients will end up getting dialysis if their potassium is too high and the medications are just not bringing it down fast enough. Now, as we stated before, some of the causes are potassium-sparing diuretics, spiractolone. We also can get rid of potassium and treat it with potassium-wasting diuretics. So some of these medications are basically used to flush out the kidneys, get rid of excess potassium. And these can include Bumex or Lasix. Now, these are not favored in renal failure patients since the kidneys don't work. You have to have good kidney function for these medications to work. And our last treatment is actually the real honorable mention, and that's K-exalate. So this may be a medication that you hear about in school. Probably not. 
Kaexalate is a treatment, a PO oral treatment for hyperkalemia. And what it does is it binds to the potassium and gets rid of it through the GI tract. And when I say GI tract, it, it really comes out of the GI tract. There used to be a joke where nurses give Kaexalate before an interfacility transfer because these patients just have massive diarrhea. The Kaexalate just grabs all the potassium and rushes out the back door, literally. I don't think it's given anymore, or at least I've never seen it given. I've never had someone with hyperkalemia go into another hospital where they've administered Kaexalate. Um, it does have some downfalls. There's been studies to show it has uh, colon necrosis where your intestines are kind of dying off. It's also been noted that some of these patients go into severe electrolyte abnormalities because they're getting rid of so much extra through their GI tract. And it's also been found to be minimally effective of actually getting rid of potassium in a timely manner. So I doubt you'll ever see it, but it's always good to keep in mind. All right, guys, that's all I have for you this week. I hope you learned something about hyperkalemia. We went over what hyperkalemia is, what are the causes, signs and symptoms, and finally how to treat it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, share the episode. As always, thank you again, and we'll see you next time.